0: Four-year-old Heather Williams was found dead at her boyfriend's home in early May. Relatives had called police after they said that she didn't show up to an appointment. Her boyfriend, Christopher Leith Myers, was arrested in relation to her death. He's now being held without bail. A vigil was held for her this week and our very own CJ Fairfield went in spoke with Heather's family and friends. And so later on, CJ is going to come in and talk a little bit about Heather and who she was as a person. And then we also spoke with Jordan Abel, one of Heather's friends, um, who spoke about her own domestic violence experience. So a little bit about this case is a little bit weird. And the state's attorney um, asked the family not to come in on the podcast, as we had originally asked. So we're mostly hearing from CJ and some of the recordings that we got from the vigil And uh, Jordan will be talking about her case, but unfortunately Jordan was not able to talk about Heather while she was talking with us. So we have CJ Fairfield here. She's one of our reporters covering business and breaking news. And so she's been following the Heather Williams case. So CJ, welcome to the podcast studio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, we were just hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit about what's
1: going on in this case. Right. So on um, May 2nd, Heather Williams was found dead. Um, She was dating Chris Myers, and she was supposed a relative called she was supposed to show up at a relative's house. Apparently, she was leaving Chris, and she never showed up. Um, Late in the evening, she was found dead, and Chris Myers was charged in relation to her death.
0: And where did they find her?
1: They found her in Chris's home, um, which I believe Heather was also living at.
0: And so now you've been um, covering this for a little bit, and you've had a chance to talk to her family and friends. Um, And so we had asked them to come in, but with um, the state's attorney had asked them not to talk to us, so they weren't able to come in and talk to us about Heather. But we were hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit about what they said about who she is as a
1: person. Right, so right after, um, as I was doing the story about Heather, I reached out to two of her friends on Facebook, and one of her friends, Victoria, described Heather as a light and Always there for you, and they recently reconnected, and actually had plans to go get coffee, um, which never happened because then Heather died. Um, But then I, this past week, I went to a vigil for Heather um, at Baker Park. More than about seventy-five people showed up for Heather, Um, young and old. Everyone from all walks of life came, and they spoke a lot about Heather. Um, Her mom spoke, her father spoke, her sister, and a few friends. I spoke a lot with Alex Griffin, who, was a fr- who has been friends with Heather since high school, and he said that she, she was the nicest person, would do anything for anybody, and, and actually it snowballed into a bigger message about domestic violence. And so one of her friends spoke about how she was in an abusive relationship and Heather actually got her out of that. And so they continued to spread the message about domestic violence awareness and where to go for help and the different resources in the community that you can get.
0: All right. And so can you just tell us a little bit about what it was like attending the vigil, what it sounded like, what you saw?
1: It was actually really upsetting. I actually had to choke back tears of my own, and which I try not to show any emotion as a reporter on the job. But I am also human, and this is a young girl who died. Um, people were crying, and you can hear sniffles throughout the crowd. There was a large table there with four different posters of pictures of Heather. People could write messages on the board. There were prayer cards, there were also little post-its, and you can write a memory of Heather and then post it in a memory jar, which I thought was very telling that, and a lot of people were doing that, and they, everyone seemed they had, seemed like they had a great memory of Heather and all positive. So you said that Heather's mom spoke? Yeah, she in, was in one the of the first people that by spoke the Vigil.
2: they being the best people we can be, um, and that's the best way to carry her legacy like on. And it was an honor to be her mom, and I'll always love her. Thank you.
1: And so then you also said it was a f- her friend Alex who they met in high school. Right. Alex girlfriend and Heather met in high school. And Alex said they've been friends ever since. And even if they didn't talk for a while, when they I did speak, it was like no, no time had passed.
2: I know these past three weeks have been pretty hard. Heather, I met Heather in high school. And from that point on, we never grew apart. We were always close. We could go months without talking but as soon as we picked up that phone, we talked like we hadn't missed any time. Heather was always there for anybody that needed it. She loved every one of her family and friends. Sorry. (laughs) So, I mean, I wanted to do this just so we can get everybody together, more so so we can make a statement that anybody that goes through what Heather went through, they're not alone. They always have somebody that is willing to lend a hand. So that's why I wanted everybody to get together today. So everybody... They say you can make a statement with a group. And that's what we're here to do. Heather's up above, smiling down on us. She's with us every day. All you have to do is just look up.
0: But it wasn't just about Heather. Some people spoke
1: about... Resources that are available, like Hartley House? Right. Heather's dad, Robert Slick, spoke about the importance of Hartley House and h- encouraging people to donate to Hartley House. And he said even if it's a dollar, he's like, you can go without a soda for a day and donate just a dollar to Hartley House just to help something in the community that will help other people in s- similar situations.
3: am not a good speaker, but uh, I know Heather's looking down, and she's smiling. Her friends, her family, you all mean the world to her she was a wonderful person had a kind heart sometimes too kind stubborn like her old man but we all have our faults i want to remember heather in many good aspects and what i would like to say is that we chose a uh, a thing that heather would like uh hartley house of frederick we're asking that anybody that wants to help donate You know, five dollars, donate a dollar. Surely you can give up a soda for one day. You know, where's humanity? We need to get back to that. People need to start caring about other people. And if we all just do one dollar, and we can raise hundreds, thousands, if we can help one, ten, a 100, I mean, we've already managed to raise up to $1,500 already. And hopefully, you know, Harley House has been been established since 1979. They take in domestic violence, you know, women with the domestic violence. They also take in human trafficking victims, raped victims, child abuse victims. It's a very good thing to just, you know, donate to. So I'm just asking, I'm begging and pleading, please, spend a dollar. You know, I don't know the number, but hey, nowadays, Google it. Everybody's got a phone. Let's donate a dollar. Everybody donates a dollar. Say, save, Let's say save, let's save, if we save one life. It's well worth it.
0: And so uh, with her family, did a lot of them talk about domestic violence as something that they saw with their Heather and her boyfriend's relationship? They didn't mention it. In in terms of domestic violence, you mentioned that there was a friend, uh, Jordan Abel, who also had her own experience with domestic violence.
1: Yeah, Jordan spoke um, to me before the vigil and spoke during the vigil about she was once in an abusive relationship, and Heather actually helped her get out of that relationship um uh and through heather's help with jordan jordan said they became so close more like sisters than friends through that experience and so it's it it was like that heather you know helped other people other than herself she definitely had a big heart and always liked to help other people
0: all right and as i know you went to the vigil and you've been following the stories there any updates on where they are right now in the case i have not heard any updates um and that's all I can tell you right now. All right. Well CJ, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us
1: about this. Thank you so much.
4: So we just heard uh from CJ talk um really eloquently about the the vigil for Heather Williams that that focused not just on her life but, but on domestic abuse as a whole and and that's an issue that this paper is and and Heather Mongilio in particular has done has done a great job highlighting and um we wanted to continue that conversation uh, by bringing in Jordan Abel, who CJ mentioned uh, was a friend of, of Heather Williams, uh, to talk about her own experience. And so uh, we're going to jump right into the conversation.
5: My name is Jordan Abel, and I'm here because I want to help raise awareness for domestic violence.
0: All right. And so would you mind telling us a little bit about why you want to raise awareness for domestic violence?
5: It is uh, something that's really important to me because of the fact that I was in a abusive relationship for a couple of years. Um, I almost died a few times but for some reason I was lucky enough to get out of it with my life.
0: And do you mind telling us a little bit about the situation and and how you met your partner and, and what happened?
5: I was 18 and I had just come home from rehab so I was pretty vulnerable and damaged it was probably my lowest point in my whole life Um, and I think we met at a party which is probably not the best place to be after you get home from rehab but again the lowest point in my life Um, and after that, we were pretty much together every day, all day. So it just happened really fast.
0: All right. And so, again, how did you met him in high school?
5: Um, I was out of high school by that time, and he was a lot older than me. So I, I, we were just at a party in like the town that I lived in.
4: Did you Did you guys bond, or what? What did you guys bond over, and what was there certain things you guys were had similar interests, or, or what kind of sparked, I guess, the connection?
5: Um, I actually didn't even talk to him when we were at the party. I just, uh, I know I saw him and then he messaged me on Facebook and it started from there. Um, I honestly don't even think that there was anything in the beginning that we had in common. It was just the fact that I had somebody mm-hmm. and I, I didn't really have anybody else at the time because I lost pretty much all of my friends after I came home and my family wasn't really like the people that are in my family, I wasn't leaning on them at all. So.
4: When, what was the relationship like at the start? Was it immediately abusive for you or or was that something that evolved over time and, and how long did that take?
5: It was probably about three months into the relationship that it first started happening um, but then after the first time, maybe one or two times, it didn't happen for probably another couple of months. So by the time it got really bad, it was like five or six months in.
0: And w- when you say it got bad, it had to be, was he verbally abusive or physically abusive?
5: It was both verbally and physically abusive, um, really controlling and... He was was just a horrible person, but the physical abuse was the worst part. I mean, he was super nice a lot of the time um, and then just really, really physically abusive and super controlling.
0: And you, you mentioned that you didn't have a lot of friends when you came out of rehab and you weren't really close to your family at that point. So at that point, was he isolating you or had you just been isolated already?
5: Yeah, it wasn't really hard for him to isolate me, Because of the fact that I wasn't really talking to anybody when I got back. Um, I started working in the town that I was living in and I made friends with the people that I was working with but that was only because he was also friends with them so it wasn't like I was going out with friends that he didn't know or where he wasn't with me he was always there so he knew it was fine.
4: When I guess at what point did the abuse get to its kind of worst point and and was there a time when you kind of realized I have to get out of this And, and do you remember that moment what was that moment for you
5: there was actually a lot of times that I felt that before um it got to the worst point but um A lot of, I don't know if it's really common with everybody that's abusive, but I know that it's pretty common. Um, A lot of people that are abusive to humans are really abusive to animals. And uh, something happened and he killed my cat. And then um, I knew that that was, that's not normal. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that abusing anybody is normal, but killing an animal for something that was not that big of a deal was the line. But after that, it was too late for me to like just leave voluntarily because then he would just kill me.
0: And did he ever threaten to kill you if you did something wrong or if you ever said I want to break up with you?
5: Almost every single day.
4: What was what was your reaction to when he would say those things and, and what did you do?
5: You kind of just make the choice to want to live because you've seen um, how bad it can get, and that he's not like lying, he's not joking, he's being completely serious. He will actually take your life if you try to leave. Um, so at that point, you either decide that you try to leave and lose your life when you're really young, I mean, even if you're really old, and if you want to live, you just kind of have to do whatever he wants you to do.
0: And so you talked about how he, he killed your cat, and that was kind of the line. So for you, when you were thinking, I need to get out, what steps did you start taking to be able to do that?
5: Um, I We were living with my mom for a while which didn't work out um because of the fact that he knew where I was living already so that was bad and then my brother lived with us so he was really little and I didn't want anything bad to happen to him so I knew that we had to leave and we were living by ourselves so there wasn't a whole lot that I could do without I mean him knowing because I worked across the street from him because he got a job right across the street from where I was working so that he could know what I was doing at all times. And if I wasn't working, we were at the place that we were living. So it was kind of like I was stuck all the time. Um, We moved out of state for a few months and I went to uh, two shelters down there. But it, it just got worse once he found me both times. So it was just after that not worth it to try and leave again um, until the day that I finally did get to escape.
0: And did you have any legal help or was there any place that you could go that would provide you with options for maybe getting a protective order or going to the police if you wanted to?
5: In the state that we were living in, I didn't know of any except for the shelters. Um, But when I came back up to Frederick, they told me about the Hartley house and I um, I did a lot of research on them and I was about to go there but then it was just it, it was really bad because he found all of um, all of my information and everything that I had written down so I just gave up on all of it
4: how you mentioned when you escaped how how did you escape
5: so on August 29th of 2015 we both happened to be working at the same place at that point in time and um he was really mad for I honestly don't remember what I think I was like not answering him fast enough because he was texting me while I was working so uh he stole my car and he came inside beforehand and pushed me into um, the wall, which was caught on the cameras. So when my manager saw what happened, she told me that I needed to stop um, forgiving him or stop letting him scare me into staying and that I needed to do something. So I told him that if he didn't bring my car back, because he took my, my car and my phone and everything that I had with me, And I used somebody else's phone to tell him that I was calling the cops if he didn't come back. So he said that he would bring my car back and told me where he parked it in the parking lot. Um, And my manager was going to walk outside with me. But there was customers coming in as soon as we walked out. So she wasn't there with me. And um, where he had parked my car was where the cameras were not uh, able to see it. And there was bushes in front of it. And uh, I walked over to the passenger side or the driver's side and he was hiding in between the bushes and the and the car and came out from there and uh, like threw me to the ground and dragged me across the parking lot. I lost my shoes and my whole face was bleeding. And then he shoved me into the car and locked it. And when I tried to opened the door, he bit my arm so badly that um, my whole arm was cut open and bleeding. And then I uh, I had convinced him to take me to the hospital because when you get to the hospital um, and you're gonna go change and everything, they have the person that you're with wait in the waiting room. And I knew that because I had been in the hospital a few days prior for some back issues. So when I got to the hospital I told them that my stomach was hurting or something but my manager had messaged me on my phone and uh, because she found my shoes in the parking lot and he told me to message her back and tell her that I was fine but when he wasn't looking I told her that I was at the hospital and where I was specifically and she sent cops and I told her not to text me back because he was taking my phone and then when I went into the the room and he was in the waiting room, the nurse asked me what really happened and I told her everything. And that's when they called the cops and um the cops came and took pictures of everything and uh pressed charges and took him to jail.
0: And him throwing you against a wall, was that something that he would do often when
5: he was angry? Almost every time. Um that was either that I have been in the hospital probably twenty, three times, if not more. And I had six concussions um, and a lot of other issues um, that I'm still dealing with today because of it, even though it's been almost four years. um, And I mean, pushing was probably the least of the things that he did, but it was always the first thing that he went to.
0: And did he ever try to um, stop you from breathing or strangle you?
5: Every single time. I'm pretty sure that most of the strangling was with something other than his hands, like a charger or a cord of some sort. But that was the first thing that, um, he did after, cause that was just like how to get me to stop moving and to stop fighting back because it's, it's almost impossible to do anything when you can't breathe and you're stuck on the ground. He was a lot bigger than me. Um, so he would just hold me down with his knees and then strangle me until I either passed out or hit my head against the ground or something else so hard that I went unconscious.
4: You you mentioned your manager telling you that you needed to, to get out and, and trying to help you. Was that the first time that somebody, had, somebody from the outside had encouraged you to, to get out of the relationship or had tried to, to help you? Or was there other people who had who had done that or said those things to you, but you just weren't able to?
5: Um, uh, Quite a few people knew what was happening, and I don't know if they were just scared or if they just didn't know what to do, but no one really ever said anything except for, I'm really sorry. Uh, My best friend one time um, called her mom and said that, that it was getting too bad and that she was really scared. And so we were trying to find a shelter closer to us or far enough away, but not like too far from my family. And I went to look into that, but that at that point it was still um, – he was still around too often and he found everything out. So I just had no choice but to stay. But my best friend was probably the only other person that tried to help me get away.
4: What is – what is your reaction or how does that make you feel to to know that people knew what was going on but to feel like you have so little people trying to help?
5: It is the worst feeling in the entire world because you have all of these people that are around you and while you think that they probably know everything that's going on, um, they probably don't to the extent that you think they do, but you're just alone. I mean, and you have you have friends and you have family, but the overwhelming feeling of loneliness is torture and you can't talk to anybody about it because if you talk to somebody about it then they could get hurt too because every time um it ha- like every time he beat me and we had friends that were coming over or if he knew that they were close uh, or could just possibly end up coming over he would threaten to hurt them or me worse for telling them. So it's just it's just terrifying. And not knowing all of your resources or that you even have any resources is it's awful because you have no idea that there's actually people that could really get you out.
0: So I want to go back um to you, your story and how he or how you got away. But can you first just tell us a little bit about what you wish someone could have said to you or what you could have said to yourself when you were still in it and, and what help you wish someone had given you?
5: I honestly just wish that someone had told me that I wasn't alone and that it was possible to make it out without dying because in my mind the only way out was to die. And I didn't think that dying was was worth it. I... I just wanted to be here still. And if I had known that there was somebody else or that I could um, go somewhere, that they really, really had like the resources to actually truly help me, I, I would have been probably out a lot sooner.
0: So when you are at the hospital and um, you, the nurse, you tell the nurse what happened and the police
5: come because of your manager, where did you go from there? What happened? So after that, um, the cops had to take pictures of all of the injuries. Um, I had to stay there for a little while because of the bite on my arm. It was uh, infected immediately. And um, I had to get antibiotics and everything in my system before I left uh, and make sure that my uh, heart rate was, like, through the roof and my blood pressure dropped really low. So I was there for a while. And then I, uh, my best friend and her mom came to pick me up and took me to the, I was in Carroll County at the time, so they took me to that um, police barracks uh, to get the restraining order. And I think it was probably midnight, but they called somebody, and within less than an hour, she was there to help me get everything ready, like all of the paperwork and have someone sign it uh, because the judge has to sign off on everything. And he was in the, the holding like detention center already. So it was pretty easy to get that finish right away.
4: How long during this process, how long are you, even if you know where he's at, kind of just looking over your shoulder and just wondering what could happen or what he could do. Does that, does that last, does that last for you? Does that kind of stay in your mind?
5: I don't think I felt safe any point in time since the day that I escaped. I pretty much, at first, it was a lot worse, and I was not leaving my house ever. Um, I was too scared to go anywhere. I was, like, double and triple checking that my doors were locked since he had been to my house and lived there for a little while. I still, to this day, can't go outside at night at my house by myself and Walking in public is terrifying, and I worry every minute of every day because he is still out there, um, and there is no way of knowing that he's not going to come back.
0: And so you mentioned that he was arrested. Did he get convicted of the
5: charges? He was in jail for, like, 10 months, um, but he got... um, He got let out, and then they did um, put him on probation for five years, supervised so that he was supposed to stay in the one state that he moved here from, and uh, he was to have no communication with me through anybody um, or leave that state ever until his probation was up, and it's it's not up yet. So he's still on that probation.
4: How has this affected the person you are today how has going through all of this changed who you are how you interact with people the way you see life
5: I um I wasn't really at my best beforehand anyways just because of everything that I had been through um nothing had ever really been easy for me before which is why I think that I was such an easy victim um but after i uh i'm just i'm a little different in a whole lot of ways uh i'm a lot stronger because i know that i can get through one of the worst things i've ever had to go through um but i'm also really paranoid all the time and i get scared really easily um It's hard for me to trust anybody. Um, I'm lucky enough to be with somebody now who is amazing, and he has helped me a lot with feeling like I'm safe again. But, I mean, it still took a a lot of work and a really long time. Um, But it definitely has made me stronger. So I guess that is a good thing.
0: And so now you told me that you're trying to raise awareness of the Hartley House. Um, and I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about why you're trying to raise awareness and why you think people need to know about Hartley House.
5: Yes, definitely. I, um, I think that the Hartley House is an amazing organization. They not only um, help women that have been abused and in violent relationships, but they help um, sex trafficking victims and abused children uh abuse men they are fantastic and they have um they have a lot of counseling groups for children and adults they help you with legal um advocacy and they help you get jobs they they do everything and it's all at no charge based off of their donations they have a lot of events where they raise money um, And they also raise awareness with their events because they uh, have so many people that join them. They have the crisis intervention and the hotline that's 24 hours. Uh, They pretty much can do anything that you need them to do in the most horrible situation that you could possibly ever be in.
0: And so what can people do in Frederick County to help support Harley House?
5: There's a lot of um, ways that you can help. You can donate to the hartley house um through their website or just by calling um there's a few fundraisers uh going on on facebook for the hartley house right now um you can you can volunteer and make care packages for the women um you can help them with like separating uh donations and on their website there's a whole list of things that you can do to to help their organization and to volunteer um, is probably the biggest one because they need as many people as they can get, especially people that have been through the same thing so that the people that are there know firsthand from you that it's possible that you can be okay and that you're not alone.
0: And for people who are maybe not aware of domestic violence, what are some signs that they can look for in their friends or family that might indicate that their friend needs help?
5: I think the biggest one for me personally, just because I don't really know um, how everybody is, was the fact that I couldn't be with any of my friends or be without him for more than five seconds. The controlling factor is a really big thing um, because domestic violence and abuse is a lot of um, not just physical but emotional and the signs that I've heard from a lot of different people is when they're calling you names all the time and just putting you down constantly Um, that's a really big one because if they can treat you that horribly then there's no telling that they aren't going to hurt you physically as well Um, the red flags for me were, of course, when, uh, I mean, just the, there was not any indication that it was going to happen the first time because there was like one small thing. And then I, I, he hit me the first time and it was, it was, there was no warning, but, um, there's a lot of, uh, red flags when you have the emotional abuse first and then the physical abuse comes after it's just so hard to tell sometimes, though, because people can seem so genuine and, and nice.
0: And so with one thing with domestic violence that um, I've heard a lot reporting on it is that people always say, well, why didn't you just leave? And, and clearly you had made multiple attempts to leave, and it takes a long time for people to leave. So to people who say, oh, why don't they just leave, what is your response?
5: That is pretty much the most frustrating thing that anyone has ever said to me, and I've heard it almost every time I've ever told my story to anybody it's it's not as easy as they think because you want to leave and you have i mean the motivation to not be hurt anymore but the fear is just so drown like you're just drowning in fear and it, it's it's horrible because you have no idea if you're gonna live if you leave and then just the constant like you're just thinking and drowning in your thoughts, like is he gonna come back? Am I okay here? I'm gonna always have to be running it It's just it's really hard, and leaving isn't as easy as people think that it is.
4: There's a lot of women out there who might be going through something like you went through that people don't know about. What would you tell them if they could hear you?
5: um uh, my main reason for telling my story in the first place is because I was really really scared that I was for some reason thinking that I was the only person going through what I was going through and that I didn't deserve to be with anybody else because that's who God had placed in my life and that was not true and I I know now that I was not the only person who was going through the same thing, and I wasn't alone in any way, um, and that I definitely deserved 100% better than to be abused every single day.
0: I think that's all our questions, and we really appreciate you coming in and tell us a little bit more about your story. Thank you. If you or anyone you know is experiencing domestic violence, you can reach out to Hartley House at 301 662 8800. That's a 24-hour crisis hotline, and the specialists there can help you connect with resources like safety planning, shelter, or legal resources. You can also reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. To learn more about Heather Williams and to read more about the vigil that her friends and family held for her, you can read CJ's reporting in the Frederick News Post at fredericknewspost.com. All right, so this is the part of our show where we bring in Kate Masters to talk about what's coming up in 72. Again, last week it was just redesigned, so I'm very excited to hear about what's coming up this week. So welcome, Kate. Thanks. Hey, Heather. Hello. So how
6: did the redesign go? It went well. You know, I think we got a lot of positive feedback. I mean, I personally was very jazzed to see it. Um, and I think that it looks much sleeker, um, you know, and more well designed. And so hopefully people will that enjoy that for years to come.
0: Cool. I was really excited to see it. It was beautiful. And I really loved the advice column. So people should definitely send that in. Um, so now... Tell us a little bit about what's going to be on this cover, though.
6: Right. So um, avid listeners might remember from last week that I am currently uh, working on a three-part series about um, the arts in Frederick and how it kind of intersects with um, planning and zoning and different regulations and how it kind of has created this divide between people who really want to see the city move forward um, and people who are like, I think Frederick is good the way it is so this week um last week's focused on the music this week's focus is focused more on public art um in particular uh current ambitions and focus on public art um people who follow the scene might remember that the frederick arts council unveiled a master public art plan back in april this year uh the city's public art commission is in the process of sort of drafting their own strategic plan so public art is very much uh, in the conversation right now um after years where it was kind of languishing, um, and to me- me, it's kind of interesting to examine the the will for public art versus the barriers that exist, as well as how younger artists feel about um, you know this focus that's being put on these sort of very public installations.
0: Very cool. So I know that you were talking a little bit of a mural that I heard about. Yeah.
6: So the, I mean, the lead of my story kind of focuses on a mural that was suggested um, by the artist and contractor Anthony Owens on a historic building um, in downtown Frederick. It's part of the historic preservation, preservation district. And it was interesting to me because as I was reporting out uh, this story, I noticed that um, when the Historical, Historic Preservation Commission was discussing the mural, a lot of the focus involved um, not just the engineering side of things, which is in the HPC purview. I mean, obviously, um, if you know anything about um, the Historic District, you know that uh, the Historic Preservation Commission is in charge with kind of maintaining that look and making sure that his structures in Frederick that are hundreds of years old aren't damaged. Um but it was interesting to me, too, that the conversation over the size of the mural, which, to be fair, is a kind of a combination mural mosaic. The idea is to use tile backers to sort of, um, you know, do a mosaic piece of art that would be then drilled into this building um, so that was a concern from an engineering side because of the weight of the project but then the conversation also really turned to size um, from an aesthetic view where I think that there are some commissioners who were worried that the proposed mosaic um, which the public arts commission was endorsing to cover 75 percent of the building there is a concern that it would kind of Take away from the historic integrity of that building just by being too big Um, like one of the quotes to paraphrase a little bit was well if, if there's a mural that big it becomes a mural with a building behind it not a building with a mural on it. So to me that was just kind of very interesting from a cultural perspective, because I, like, as an outside observer, it kind of makes you wonder, well, if a blank wall could be considered, like, a historically defining feature of a building, you sort of wonder where there's room for public art then, um, and how that fits into sort of the fabric of Frederick.
0: All right, and so I don't want to go too much more into that story, but I do understand you had to read a lot of planning and zoning code because of this?
6: Yeah, I, well, I listened to a lot of um, minutes <laughs> from the Historic Preservation Commission.
0: So is there any interesting, like, fun fact that may not even be related to this story that you discovered in your deep research of the code? Um, uh, I It's hard. I think
6: that... There's a lot about the Historic Preservation Commission that's interesting. Um, Obviously, they have a lot of power, at least within the Historic District, um, because they basically have final veto and say um, over any alterations. And one thing that I was told by... like Owens himself, actually, uh, who is in favor of the Historic Preservation Commission, was that some people move to Frederick um, and don't realize that they actually have purview over all four sides of your house. So a lot of people move to Frederick because they're like, oh, this it's so cute and charming, this, you know, downtown area. And then they want to do renovations and they're kind of taken aback when the historic preservation commission says, "Well, no," like we can actually rule on whether you get to put like synthetic shutters onto the backside of your house that isn't even visible from the street, but they do uh, because it's in the overlay.
0: All right. Well, again, we don't want to go much further because you can pick up a seventy-two hours copy on Thursday and read her story. But since you mentioned it's a series, mm-hmm. did you get any interesting feedback from your first one? Um,
6: you know, the feedback that I saw was um
0: that I've gotten so far has been positive,
6: which is always nice to hear as a journalist. And I think um, like the, the most gratifying thing to me was just that some people didn't like quite realize the, the regulations that were there. And so, I mean, to me, you know, hopefully it fosters a conversation. All right,
0: awesome, so what else can people expect?
6: Yeah, well, another story that I'm very excited about um, is an interview, a QA, and um, a that's part of our sort of sporadic artist spotlight series, um, and this is with a Frederick turned LA artist named Sonny Apollo, um, and he is currently uh, doing a residency in LA, and has plans to drop a new album in the fall, and we talk all about growing up in Frederick um, and being a queer man of color, growing up in this community and finding his way as an artist, um, and so I think that is going to be an interview um, that will hopefully like resonate with people um, and be interesting to people who follow the local music scene. And then for Taste Buds this week, uh, I think it's a pretty high-profile restaurant that recently opened, Hometown Harvest Kitchen, which if you follow the Frederick food scene, you'll know um, was started by the owners of South Mountain Creamery, um, uh, th- which has they've already really they're an interesting sort of case study because, right, like they're this dairy that has managed to succeed in light of, you know, all the barriers and difficulties that are currently facing the dairy industry and a lot of what they did um, or how they accomplished that was diversifying their products. Um, you know, they do a lot of like box deliveries and they have a CSA where they source a lot of products from local farms and because of their experience with that, um, owner Tony Bresco and his wife opened this restaurant that's, their they're billing is a farm-to-fork restaurant and and um, it's cafeteria style meat and three, which is what I was told by the chef that I had never heard of that term because I'm not super southern. But basically you can pick from a range of proteins and sides um, and it has uh, the, all the creamery ice cream. So there's an ice cream bar as well. Um, and so I reviewed it this week and it's pretty fun.
0: All right. And I know this has nothing to do with food, although you definitely can read the review to find out why you should go. But just since I happen to be maybe around the same time at the restaurant as you were, um, I understand they also have this thing called a boozy milkshake. They do have boozy milkshakes. um, So, you know, which is pretty
6: self-explanatory. It's a milkshake with booze. um, And they have like four different flavors now, I want to say, including like a chocolate peppermint. There's one called the Dude, which has Kahlua. Um, It's sort of reminiscent of a white russian which is why it gets the nod from the big lebowski um and so i mean now family meal just isn't the only restaurant in town doing that so i guess maybe they'll have to step up their game
0: all right and so um anything that we should know about for about the columns or any uh, particular pieces of advice you have for us um yeah i mean well oh well
6: so I think, you know, of course, as we're launching the advice columns, I think that Alan and I tackled some pretty interesting questions this week. Look out for that. As always, we have CJ Fairfield, who's our business reporter, who also writes a hysterical column um, as part of our Voices section. And then next week, you can look out for a column um, by our own Ben Singleton, who sort of take the backstage role at the news post. He's part of our copy desk. So um, you don't see his byline in the paper regularly. But he's an incredibly smart guy. He's like a master of trivia. And he's also hugely into literature. So he is doing a literature column that we're really excited about.
0: Well, great. Well, again, you can get a copy of 72 Hours every Thursday. So you can read all about Kate's series and the columns that she mentioned. Kate, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you, Heather. Frederick Uncut is produced by me, Heather Mangilio,
4: me, Alan Etzler,
0: and edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.